0: Well, good morning again. I uh, have been looking forward to this ever since Clint extended the invitation. Um, we were here, oh, I think, maybe this second Sunday uh, when you just were beginning, and to be able to walk back in and to, to feel the energy, the love, the, uh, the sense that uh, something very special is happening through Seven Mile Road, Waltham. So it's just good to be here. Um, Many of you, have over the last few weeks, you've been listening in, as, as Clint and then, uh, of course, Kevin and then Steve last week, have been inviting you to take a look at these gems of insight that come from Proverbs that, that that are just full of just crisp, very brief statements that have a way of saying, I want to introduce you to something that maybe you've never seen before, never seen in this way, called wisdom The skill to live a life that is pleasing to God, but the skill to live a life in the way God sees life and in the same way that he sees you as well. So we're going to jump back into that study this morning, and I've listened to some of the messages along with you. I wasn't here, but I've listened to them uh, over the broadcast. And so I want to just invite you to pray with me first, and then we're going to jump right into where we're going to be headed this morning, okay? Father, these are not just uh, the passing of moments. Already, we've experienced uh, Your love through others. Uh, we've been able to lift up our uh, our heart to You in some uh, phrases of, of uh, personal uh, confession to You. Uh, we've experienced also the assurance of Your grace and Your forgiveness. Uh, We've experienced the opportunity to uh, watch others worship, even our children worship, and see the joy that they have, and that's the way it's supposed to be. Um, And for those of us who have walked with you for years, this is something that means the world to us and continues to be a part, a big part, the center of our lives. For those that are just exploring it, Father, we would love for them to experience that same joy and that same closeness to you. Thank you that you speak to us in ways that are louder than words. You speak to us in the depth of our hearts, into our very souls. And we would pray we would hear that today from your wonderful, timeless, totally trustworthy word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I mentioned the fact that um, uh, Clint and Kevin and Steve have been taking you through this wonderful series on Proverbs, The Way of Wisdom. Now there's a one a very distinct, obvious difference between them and me, and that is they are much, much younger. But that gives me an advantage in this way. Whenever I think about with children, and I think about my own children, I have three adult children, and we have ten grandchildren. After 46 years of marriage, we've we've walked a lot of path. We've been through a lot of life, and I, I think back on the time when we used to send our kids off to camp, and especially the boys. Whenever you send a boy off to camp, basically what you tell them as they're getting on the bus or you're dropping him off at the camp, you say things like, be sure to take a shower every day, be sure to you know, change certain things that need to be changed every day, and make sure you brush your teeth, et cetera. And that's one thing, but none of you, none of the speakers so far have had what I have gone through with Gail, and that is to take each one of our three children off to college. To pack up everything, drive down the road, drive down to Auburn, Alabama, drive down to to Bowling Green, Kentucky, drive down to Murray, Kentucky, and take each one of our three children and pull out all of the things that we've loaded up, we think that they need, that have cost us more money than we thought it would imagine. We, we walk into the room, and we're already trying to figure out what it's going to look like. We go through all of that kind of sense of excitement of walking onto the campus and what it's going to be like to live like a college student. And then as a parent, it hits you. I'm going to be leaving them. They're going to be on their own. They're going to make a ton of choices. They are going to be navigating life in a whole new culture. We're not going to be around them. They're on their own. And I, I know with all three of them, I think they probably had this look of, uh, okay, I get it. But we had a probably, I especially remember with my daughter, sitting down and going through everything I thought I needed to tell her before we left. Let me just remind you of this. and oh by the, And it wasn't brush your teeth. It was much bigger life issues. I have a feeling that's exactly what Solomon was doing and the writers of, of Proverbs. It's not a drill sergeant. It's not somebody with a commanding voice as much as the endearing voice of a parent to a child. And trying to load them up with as many life lessons as they possibly can get. Because you know they're going to be navigating life on their own. And it's not just for them, it's timeless. And that's why I think God in his great wisdom said, you need this as well as my children. Now, I want to introduce this to you this morning as we get into our our, uh, subject for this morning. Several years ago, in 2006, in fact, a magazine called Smith published and asked the following question. I'll put it up on the screen. Here's the question. If you had to summarize your life in six words, what would they be? The response was so great online that it almost crashed the site. And after getting such a great response, they took all of their, the, the, what they received, and, and it ranged from very fascinating to obscure to very inspirational to even something that was very discouraging. And they put all of those together, and they compiled it into a book called Not Quite What I Was Planning. And that's the topic of our message. It's the title of our message today. In fact, it's a free download. It's just full of these six-word statements. Now, they piggybacked off an idea that of the fabled le- uh, writer, Ernest Hemingway, was once challenged to write a six-word story and it resulted in the classic, for sale, baby shoes, never used. Six words. I wonder today if you were to start looking through that book as you would read through it, what you might identify with. These are just some of the entries, again, from funny to ironic to inspiring to heartbreaking. One of the entries said, one tooth, one cavity, life's cruel. Uh, Another said, savior complex makes for many disappointments. Another one, cursed with cancer, blessed with friends. Did not come from an uh, elderly person, but from a nine-year-old boy. The psychic said, I'd be richer. Tombstone won't say, had health insurance. Not a good Christian, but trying. Thought I would have more impact. I still make coffee for two. The challenge of that six-word experience is that it helps you to really focus on what life really is all about, What's, what matters most, to try to capture it it is something that uh, of significance. And it also brings to mind the fact that if you were to try to boil our life story down to six words, we realize that our life story is the sum of the decisions that we make on a daily basis. Uh, again, I was fascinated by a study by a Columbia researcher, Sheena Inagar. She found that the average person makes about 70 conscious decisions every day. That's 25,550 decisions a year. Over 70 years, that's 1,788,500 decisions. You put all those decisions together, and it'll wear you out, won't it? The choices are something that we, we love, and it's also something that scares us because our choices are what determines the sum of our lives. It can be paralyzing at times number of choices, and we live in a day, an unprecedented time, of all kinds of options. We also live in a day of a lot of confusion and chaos about what we should do and how we should live, and there's all kinds of competing voices out there. And, and sometimes it, it be overwhelming even in a restaurant. Have you ever found yourself in a restaurant, they bring you the menu, and you look at the menu and you're going, I don't know. And you look at, we have a wonderful place in North End we love to go, Limoncello's. It's in in the North End. It's a wonderful Italian restaurant. And we take a lot of our friends there. They bring the menu out and you look at it and you, number one, you're trying to understand what they've really put on the menu. And as you're reading through it, and you know what I always do? I always ask the waiter, what would you recommend? Have they ever recommended something to you that says, no, you don't want that? Every entree on there is what? That's great. Excellent choice. It's almost like they're trained to never say anything negative about anything that's on the menu. But all of us realize that it's not just in some simple way with menus in a restaurant. Every single day, we're faced with choices. And sometimes when we look at those choices, while it thrills us, it scares us. And because after our choices, do you not do this was that the right call did i did i miss out did i miss something there is that really the best option tim keller with a very poignant insight says this and listen to these words wisdom is the ability to know what the right thing to do is in the 80% of life situations to which the moral rules don't apply For most of the decisions you have to make, the moral values, whatever you think they are, don't apply because there are three, four, or five different things that are options and they're all allowable. They're all moral, which is the right one. In every area of our lives, the work area, the love area, the marriage, the family, we have decisions we have to make. And if we don't make them wisely, we're going to blow up our lives in the lives of people around us. That's our dilemma. All these choices, all these decisions, and it's not about a moral decision. It's about making a wise decision. What is not right or wrong, but what is the wisest thing to do in light of God's preferred future for my life? That's the big question. Brings us to our message today. Aren't you glad we're finally going to get there? Because some of you are already kind of wigged out about all the decisions you're trying to make even right now while I'm talking. Am I going to listen to this guy or am I going to think about what's going to happen later on? I hope you choose to listen. I was caught by, before we get into our text actually today, by these words in Proverbs 16, verses 1 and 2. The plans of the heart belong to man but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. In other words, the Lord has the final word, okay? In other words, check out what he says. Let his word be the final word. All the ways of man are, in his, are pure in his own eyes. All of us fall in love with our own opinions. We're convinced we're correct, but the Lord weighs the spirit. He probes the heart to check out why are we making that decision? What are the true motives this last week, I was driving through Norwood, and as I drove through, I passed by this church corner. And This was the sign on the street corner of the church. Here's what it said. Hope, how is that plan of yours working out? Google Jeremiah 29, 11. I don't know if you know that passage of scripture. I know the plans that the Lord has for you, plans to prosper you and to, to bless you. I wanted to go, and I wanted to take that sign and put on it how is that plan of yours working out? Google Proverbs 3, verses 1 through 12, because that's where we're going to be headed this morning. So with that in mind, and actually these 12 verses, as I walk through them and as I listen to others speak into it and help me get a greater understanding, these 12 verses actually is kind of a mini version of the entire book of Proverbs. All the major themes are right here. So I want you to follow along, and if you want to take notes, fine, if you want to remember some of these things that we're going to share this morning, not my opinions, but this is God's final word, this is how to build a life lived well, and and we have to understand that the Bible is not not a book that is full of good advice. It's about a story, a redemptive story that he wants you to be a part of. So as we're reading this, this isn't just good advice. This is God saying, this is how I think I can redeem your life and turn it into a far greater story, okay? Are you with me? Okay, with that in mind, let's read through and we'll make some uh, comments along the way. Here's what he says, Proverbs 3, beginning at verse 1. My son, there's that relational, endearing tone, Do not forget. And he's not talking about in terms of your memory, but in terms of ignoring. Uh, One of the great things about finding the Proverbs is that it, it says wisdom is available, but there's another truth that we find through Proverbs, that wisdom can be ignored. We can say, there's really nothing there for me. And he's saying, don't forget And and, and he's not talking about something. He said, don't forget my teaching. He's not talking about something that, that he says I've come up with. He's saying, no, I'm going to pass on to you what I have learned from God, life lessons. As I've even studied those first five books that we call the Pentateuch, that was something that Solomon had been able to digest in his own heart. And he says, I want to pass this on to how it's been played out in my life. And he says, my life has been saturated with the wisdom that's greater than my own. And I want to pass that on to you. This is proven, God-given wisdom. Don't lose sight of this. I, I, I go back to that college moment. I remember the last word I said to my youngest son. I said to him, remember who you are. That wasn't about his identity as my son but that he was God's child, that he was a Christ follower. That's what you hear here. Don't forget, but keep, make every decision in light of this filter. Say no to all the things that would draw you away from this. For length of days and years in life and peace, they will add to you. He says, if you, you follow what I'm telling you here, it's going to put life into your life and so that it will be full. And then... He goes on and he says, well, here's what that teaching is all about. In verses 3 and 4, he says, I want you to know what that, the essence of that teaching is. Let's read it. Verse 3. Let not steadfast love. Let not steadfast love uh, be lost from you. Hold on to it. You know, what he's saying there, and it's one of the favorite words in the Hebrews, cheset. And it's, it's a word that combines a lot of different things. It's a, a kindness and a sensitivity, and it's the ideal of bringing relief into another person's life. Don't let the steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. And faithfulness there being something that is trustworthy and reliable and firm. Don't lose your grip on these two things. Instead, he says, bind them around your neck And he's saying, put them in the center of your life like something that's very precious and and build your life around these things. Constantly meditate on them. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Let the posture of your heart be towards them that you embed them, that they influence every choice and movement of your life. And if you do that, you will find favor, grace, and good success. There's a promising reward here of your reputation with God and with man. Do you hear what he's saying? He said, here's the essence of my teaching that I want you to never forget, and I don't want you to forsake, lose your grip on. Your life, let it be marked by the fact of his great love for you, that you share and express towards others in the same way he expressed his kindness towards you, and faithfulness, that you live a life that reflects the fact that he has taken your life and changed it from the inside out. You belong to him, and he's shaping your character. So let's pause for a minute. This is just kind of the opening part of this entire passage that he's advising, instructing, and sharing with his son. Here's the big takeaway that I would encourage you to remember. Here it is. If you want to live a life well, if you want to get on God's plan for your life, you want to help make the right decisions, Choices, options. The first thing to think about based on what he's saying here is I'd, I'd summarize it this way Pursue a life defined by God's steadfast love and personal integrity. He's saying, Let your life be shaped. Don't let these things be absent from your life. Pursue this, let this be the banner, the filter. A life of steadfast love. Remembering his love for you, his covenantal love. He's not going to stop loving you. Let that love flow out of you in the same way that God's love has flowed over you. All right? Okay, that's kind of the first big nugget here. Let's go a little bit further. All right? Here's where we get into some of the most well-loved verses in all of Proverbs. Beginning at verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Uh, There's so much here. Uh, I want to begin by taking that first word, trust. Here's what he's saying. Because the language here doesn't mean, uh, on an occasion, uh, when you think it's helpful, The word trust there is in the imperative, and what it means is this is essential. You must trust, not just occasionally, temporarily, but continually. This should be a part of every decision. Trust the Lord with all your heart, without reservation. Trust the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean upon your own understanding. When he says lean, he's not talking about incline. He says, don't look to it for support alone. He's not saying that you shouldn't have rational thought. When When he's telling us not to lean upon our own understanding, he's not saying that you shouldn't be a thinking person. Because in fact, in other places in Hebrews, I mean in Proverbs, it says, understanding will guard you. He's not against understanding. It's good to use your rational thought. Think through those options. Think through those decisions. There's nothing wrong with that. What he's saying, though, is what's dangerous is when we start putting the full weight on our own understanding. Because our own understanding won't bear the full weight of all the reality that we're surrounded with. It can't handle it. Your understanding and my understanding. Let me put it this way. (laughs) Trying to get the full understanding that God has into your, in, 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 on your own is like trying to cram a grand piano in a janitor's closet. You don't have the capacity that he has. And he's saying, don't lean upon it. Don't, don't rely upon that. Instead, and it, it's counterintuitive, that your understanding will only take you so far, but it's not capable enough, competent enough to explain the mysteries of life, to deal with all the challenges of life. It's just not big enough to handle all the craziness of life. No, in all your ways, acknowledge him. And the idea of acknowledging him there is the idea of showing a certain respect and inviting him in and saying, God, I need your counsel on this. God loves to give us counsel. He says, "I I I want you to speak into this, God. I don't, I don't want to try to make sense of this on my own. Isn't it interesting? When he says, lean not upon your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him. Isn't that what prayer is really all about? Isn't prayer saying, I'm not going to lean on my understanding? God, I'm inviting you to this. I really need you to speak in this. I really need your counsel. I can't figure this out. I can only go so far with this. So what is he saying here? As you're making your way through life with all these choices and options, It is absolutely essential that you put your confidence, that you look beyond yourself and your own understanding, that you trust God's greater wisdom and you lean into that and you invite him in to speak into that situation in every detail of your life, in every decision. That's what he's saying. Invite him in. regards to a financial decision, a marital, relational decision. How you raise your kids. What choices you're going to make. Invite God into that. Invite him into it. You know, what, what are the biggest challenges? And I'm going to spend a little bit more time on this particular part of the passage today. When God is way over here, and you're way over there that's when all the challenges start that's when we make stupid decisions when God is at a distance and we're over here and God's over there and we don't bring him into our lives we want to be autonomous but we can't bear the weight of that in terms of all the decisions we have to make you know, you can go all the way back to the very early pages of the Bible when we hear, hear that creation narrative about the first man and woman, Adam and Eve. And Do you remember where they got in trouble? They walked with God in the cool of the evening in the garden, the super spot that God had created with them in mind. And you remember they, the, the, the tempter came and began to say, do you really think God knows what he's doing? And begin to ask the question, Is God really as good as you think he is? And what do they do? They said, you know what? I don't think we can trust God. I think he's keeping something from us. And your problems and my problems, and the issues of your life and my issues of my life, all begin when we start thinking, you know, I don't know whether I can really bring God into this. I don't know whether I, he has the capacity to handle this. And when that starts happening, we become alienated. And the end result is shame, guilt, fear, and choices that end up not only harming us, but blowing other people's lives apart as well. Do you realize that the ultimate understanding when it comes to the essence of sin, do you know what it is? We talked about this a little bit earlier about confession of sin. Do you know what the essence of sin is? And I like this definition. It's a mistrustful state of being that moves us from communion to alienation by means of disobedience and pride. We're saying to God, I'm not going to trust you. And through disobedience, arrogance, and pride, we're alienated from God's wisdom and way of living. That's why he's saying it so powerfully. Trust. You've got to do this. Not just today or every once in a while. This has to be the filter. Invite God in to every decision. Every decision. There was a, a, a very famous writer, if you've perhaps heard of him. He was a Yale, he was an Ivy League professor, highly re- regarded. And then he surrendered his life to serve the least of these those who suffered with mental illness. His name was uh, Henry Nouwen. And he became very fascinated in the last years of his life with a group of trapeze artists called the Flying Rodleys. There was something about their courage that kind of inspired him like a parable for life with God. So one day he actually got to sit down with them, the leader of the troop, and he was talking about their flying and he said to them, as a flyer, I must have complete trust in my catcher. The public might think that I'm the great star of the trapeze, but the real star is Joe, my catcher. He has to be there for me with split second precision and grab me out of the air as I come to him in the long jump. How does it work? He asked, the secret, Rodley said, is that the flyer does nothing and the catcher does everything. When I fly to Joe, I have to simply stretch out my arms and hands and wait for him to catch me and pull me safely over the apron behind the catch bar. You do nothing, I said. That's all? Nothing, Rodley repeated. The worst thing the flyer can do is to try to catch the catcher. I'm not supposed to catch Joe. It's Joe's task to catch me. If I grabbed Joe's wrist, I might break them, or he might break mine, and that would be the end of both of us. A flyer must fly, and a catcher must catch, and the flyer must trust with outstretched arms that his catcher will be there for him. My part is to be the flyer to trust, to surrender, to give my life. God's part is to catch, to hold, and to do in me and for me what I can't do for myself. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not upon your own understanding. In all your ways invite him in acknowledge him and he will direct your paths what does it mean he will remove all the obstacles from helping you to see the best choice because he will fill you with his wisdom so what's the takeaway simple truth here it is and you you could probably put this together yourself here it is place the full weight of your confidence in god's grace goodness and greatness. Full weight. God's a, he's a gracious God. God is, His good. God is so awesomely great. And I place the full weight of my confidence. I'm inviting him in to speak in to my life. Let's go a little bit further. Still with me? All right, good. You haven't chosen to Check out. All right, good. All right, Proverbs 3, verse 7 and 8. Be not wise in your own eyes. Don't be a know-it-all. Be not wise in your own eyes. Instead, fear the Lord. Not in the sense of a dreadful anxiety in which you're afraid of like a slave would be of his master mean-spirited. No, not that kind of a fear, but a fear that says, God, I'm going to live with a sense of awe and wonder. I'm always going to have this deferential respect for you and turn from evil. I'm going to move away from all the tempting uh, uh, opportunities and options out of regard the highest respect for you. And what will be the promising reward? It will be healing to your flesh. It will free you from the strain of sin and your entire well-being. From the inside out, it'll be healing. This one's pretty simple. What's the takeaway? Builds on everything we just read in verses five and six. Here it is. Give up any and every notion of self-sufficiency. Give up any and every notion of self-sufficiency. Are you following so far? You're going to build a life lived well. What is it like Father to a son, God to us, here's how you do it. You pursue a life focused on his steadfast love for you and a life of personal integrity. You place the full weight of your confidence in God's goodness and his greatness and his grace. And you give up any and every, every notion of self-sufficiency that you can, somehow other another, you are know-it-all, that you can figure it out on your own. Let's go a little bit further. Verses 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth. And with the first fruits of all your produce. Not the leftovers. But the first fruits. Then your barns will be filled with plenty. and Your vats will be bursting with wine. Do you see his personal relationship with the Lord? How he's emphasizing it? Trust. Fear, now honor, put him in a place of prominence and preeminence in your life. And he's saying, How do you do that? He's saying, Do that with everything that you have that you possess that when you look at everything you have, whether it be your home or your job or your finances or your whatever it is that you have, that, that bank account, whatever it is that you have, however big or small, look at it and say, this is something that God has provided and poured into my life. And I'm gonna look at it not as mine, but I'm gonna look at it and say, God, this is yours and I acknowledge that and I'm willing to offer you at the very start your top priority for me. God, you use this any way you want to including your finances, your treasure, your, 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 your own personal treasure, your own giftedness, your time, your, all, all that you are, just your life is saying, God, it's not mine. It's not my stuff. It's not my life to do with as I please. God, I uh, acknowledge that. I'm gonna put you in this preeminent place in my life. So what does that takeaway mean for your life and mine? Here's what it means. It means that when you do that, God becomes your provision. And it means that your life then continually is a conduit of generosity. And you live a life where you're constantly looking for ways to pour out your life into the life of others. And God says when you do that, you'll never be able to outgive what I'm going to keep pouring in your life. I'll pour in, you pour out. I'll pour more in so you can pour more out. that's, That's the cycle of generosity. Here's the takeaway. And this is a simple one, but it's probably one of the hardest to do, especially because of the way we hold on to things. Here it is. Hold all you possess loosely as a gift from God. Hold it loosely with an open hand. God, take whatever you want, however you want. It's all yours to begin with. I don't own it. I just manage it. I want to invest it in such a way that acknowledges that you own it. It's yours. My life, my time, it's all yours. Let's go to the final. Proverbs 3, verses 11 through 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Or be weary of his reproof. You started hearing these words, and these are a little bit a little bit heavier. What is he saying? This whole idea of reproof. You know what that is? That's God's personal critique of your life. When he begins to rub his finger along the edges of your life, and he says, we got some work to do here. Here's a deficiency. It's an area where you need to grow. This is is an area that's just not right where it needs to be. That's what reproof is, to convince and to draw attention to and to say, let's go to work on this. Where you invite invite him in to speak into areas of your life and say, God, show me where I need to grow. Show me what needs to be refined in me, what needs to be radically altered in me. Verse 12, for the Lord reproves him who he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. This this part may be the part that we have the hardest to accept, but it's the idea that we accept and learn from the difficulties and suffering of our life, not as a means of punishment, but as a means of refining us. a lot of times when we look at suffering, we say, I wonder what God's trying to teach us. I don't think that's what God's trying to do whenever we go through suffering as what God is trying to say, look, I want you to look to me in those moments so that you can see that I'm sufficient for you in those moments. And then out of that experience, I'll show you something that I want to make in you that's not in you just yet. I love the way that C.S. Lewis illustrates this truth by noting that an Artists may not take much trouble over a picture drawn to amuse a child, but he takes endless effort over his great work of the art that he loves. Lewis argues that were his magnum opus sentient, as the artist rubbed and scraped off and recommended for the tenth time, it would cry out in pain. He drew the conclusion that when we complain of our sufferings, we're not asking for more love, but for less. The more God is engaged in your life, the more you experience his love. Even in those moments when he says, we've got some work to do in you and in me. So the final takeaway from this passage. Respond to God's loving correction with hope and assurance. With hope and assurance. So let's go back. How do you build a life that is lived well? How do you live a life in such a way that it's lived with the skill, with wisdom, that you live life as God has planned and created you to live? How do you do that? And he walks through five different ways you can begin to even pray in your own life. God, I want to pay so much attention to you, and and I want the truth of your love and i want my life to be shaped by your faithfulness and by i want i want to put absolute confidence in your goodness and your grace i want that i want to invite you into every decision i don't want to think that i know it all god instead i'm giving up every ounce of self-sufficiency and god i want my life to be placed before you and held loosely so that you can take whatever it's yours it's not mine And God, I invite you to show me areas where I need you to go to work on me, in me. Now, you know what you'll end up with when you begin to live those truths out and they become a part of your life? You'll come up with a six-word story for your life. And here's the six-word story. Are you ready for it? Here's the six-word story. God knows what he is doing. That's it. God knows what he is doing. I can trust him. I'm going to live in awe and respect of him. I'm going to honor him and I'm going to receive whatever he has for me. God knows what he is doing. Let me ask you, does it always feel like that? No. There are days when you look at Situations in your life. I was talking with a, a mother uh, this past week, wife, and as I was talking to her, everything she was talking to me, I was just saying, that doesn't make any sense. And you've got situations like that, right? Look at our, our crazy world. Can you say with confidence? God knows what he's doing. All you have to do is look at the cross. Because when you look at the cross, you're going, no, no. And yet on the cross, God knew exactly what he was doing through the gift of his son, paying the ultimate price for our sin and for salvation, and for redemption. God knows what he is doing. But it's all wrapped up in the person of Jesus. Listen to what Paul writes to a group of Christ followers. We close with this. Paul says, I want you to know, he's talking to a group of maybe people like you and me today, I've got this great longing in my heart for you. I want your hearts to be encouraged. I want to breathe life into you. I want you to be wrapped together in a cocoon of love. I want you to have access to all the riches of God that he has for you. With full understanding to be able to receive the knowledge and revelation of God's great mystery. He's now unveiled and that mystery is Christ. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Christ, you'll discover heaven's wisdom. And all the endless riches of all that you'll ever need to know in Christ. So what's your six word story? not exactly like I thought, or is not exactly like I planned, or is it going to be, God knows what he is doing. Let's pray together.